AVXL episode 181 was recorded on May 14th, 2022. There's a new flagship noise-canceling headphone. Sony just dropped the WH-1000XM5. Kef's LS50 Wireless has a new big floor-standing sister, the LS60. A new soundbar from Sonos. Apple officially ends the iPod. And let's talk about the high end. All that and so much more. And please, don't forget, if you got a question for Robert or I, email ask at avxl.com. We love to hear what you're curious about, and we want to help fill your brains with useful knowledge. And thank you, thank you, thank you to everyone that supports us at patreon.com slash avxl. Without you, we cannot make the show. So again, thank you, patreon.com slash avxl. Testing, one, two, three. All right. I'm not blowing anything out. Ignorant weasels chewing on your soul. Ignorant weasels. Do you have speed? Yeah. Pour one out for Fred Ward and the iPod. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, the last iPod Touch canceled. This ends the 20-year run of Apple's iPod series, one of which, which has to be nine years old, still cheerfully running in my son's room. At least two more scattered around my life. Um... They're still excellent audio players, but uh, Apple is no longer going to manufacture them. There are some available in the channel. And if you have an older, like, scroll wheel type iPod, there's a whole chunk of curious little products out there to uh, modify them and upgrade them. And like I said before, as long as you don't have, you know, giant, over-the-top, ridiculous, power-consuming headphones, they do a fine job creating a stereo listening environment so i just had to give a shout out on that they've become a collector's <laughs> item oh they've been a collector some of them have been a collector's yeah. item for a while especially some of the larger classic models um also want to give a shout out to fred ward and say goodbye um we'll always have trevor's fred trevor's tremors good lord i think i've seen that movie 40 times um the 79 year old actor I, I got to say, profoundly influenced my teenage years with his roles in The Right Stuff. I still say maintaining an even strain, which is Fred Ward playing Gus Grissom, the astronaut. Uh, that's still part of my vocabulary. Uh, Remo Williams, The Adventure Begins, and Tremors were on heavy rotation uh, with me and my cousin back in the day. Uh, you might have also seen Fred Warren at Escape from Alcatraz, Chain Reaction, a movie which I might be the only person listening to this podcast that likes. Uh, Robert Altman films like Shortcuts and The Player. Uh, he had a role in Tim Robbins' Bob Roberts. Miami Blues was incredibly well-reviewed. Uh, and more recently, he did some work in True Detective. And there's dozens of appearances that I didn't list there. But, uh, yeah, i miss him. Gonna miss him. Um, I hear Yeah. That voice, that great big gruff voice. Um, Man, I didn't uh, didn't expect this to happen anytime soon, but uh, Sony has upgraded their flagship active noise-canceling headphones, the 1000 XM4s with the new WH-1000 XM5s. Um, Those, basically, early reviewers were seated with those, uh, about half the planet, actually. Um, Marcus Brownlee did one of the best reviews on them I've seen so far. Um, there's a ton of them out there and they're not shipping until the 20th. And there's been almost no, I don't think anybody who's gotten a pair of testing does for testing does anything like, um, an actual frequency response curve generated with a microphone, but 
generally speaking, the early responses say there's less of the boomy bass, uh, that it's uh, more neutral or more detailed, more neutral or more detailed, probably because the bass, it doesn't, you know, it no longer sounds like you've stuffed your head in the subwoofer. Right. Um, this is good as far as I'm concerned. And the nice thing about the, the Sony app for the, you know, 1000XM3, 1000XM4, 1000XM5 is it allows you to do a fair amount of EQ. Not maybe as granular as you'd like, but it certainly allows you, for example, in my case, to take the 1000XM4 from something that sounds like, again, I'm stuffed in the backseat of the Buick with the two 15-inch subwoofers rattling loose in the trunk to something that I find incredibly uh, enjoyable. I've spent a lot of time listening with these headphones, in part because I use them whenever I'm traveling with airplane engines or diesel engines. Um, and I've I probably have three or four hundred hours of listening, and probably in excess of a hundred, hundred twenty-five hours on them, uh, while entirely too close to a jet engine or a diesel engine. Um, same battery life, around thirty hours, and. Uh, they have a new charging feature, which I think is fantastic. Uh, if you have a high-power PD charger, they're talking about three minutes to get three hours, uh, ten minutes to get five hours, which, you know, if if you run out of charge on a plane, that's fantastic as far as I'm concerned. Or if you're trying to just juice your headphones up before you sprint out the door to your Uber. Again, no, no subjective testing. Um, Early but, reviews. Early reviews are saying that they seem to have increased the amount of noise cancellation at higher frequencies. Uh, so that's the rumor on that one. Something interesting, they went from a 40-millimeter driver in the XM4 to a 30-millimeter carbon fiber composite driver in the XM5. This does not bother me. I read a couple of reviews where people are like, it's 25% smaller. No, the radius is 25% smaller. The actual area is about, um, I was going to say about 40% smaller, um, if I did the math correctly. Um, I appreciate <laughs> accurate mathematics. <laughs> you know, I was sitting there with the radio. I've been teaching this to my older son last year, so I was, I was, I, it was all I could do not to run downstairs and be like, Seamus, this is why you have to be able to know to calculate the area of a circle. Um, but, uh, you know, it's again, carbon fiber composite, why do we do that? To make it light and stiff. The lighter and stiffer it is, the easier it is to drive it back and forth, the better the response you'll get out of it. Uh, they've doubled the number of mics to eight. Uh, again, some people feel that this has made a tremendous improvement to the microphone capabilities. Other people are not so impressed. You know, the, honestly, the XM4 did a pretty good job with the microphones. Biggest change that everybody's noticing is instead of having the cups that kind of fold inward and up into the headband they now rotate so that it folds flat and it's got a big round horseshoe shaped case it's, it's all very obviously inspired by what Bose did with some of their high-end stuff very nice Marcus Brownlee has a great video of it because one of the things and I do this too when you pull the XM4s down onto your shoulders you can rotate the cups flat so they kind of sit on your your shoulder blades and they don't press up against your chin which is annoying you can no longer do that you can fold them up but you can't fold them down. So this is, you know, minutia. But if you're worried about, if you've ever eaten a sandwich with your, your earphone cups folded flat on your shoulders so as to not get food in the ear cup, um, that's no longer happening. Um, <laughs> everybody mentions LDAC for streaming. Uh, I don't really see much real-world benefit to it, but if you're excited about that, uh, it's got Sony's LDAC support in there. There's some really interesting recycled plastic about this. I'm just going to quote uh, What Hi-Fi, because they did the simplest kind of 
and, and certainly the most exuberant explanation of this I read anywhere. Uh, they are made predominantly from acrona... Oh, man. Acrylonitrile. Thank you. Acrylonitrile. <laughs> Butadiene styrene, or ABS, as we commonly know it. Um, and they're claiming that they're recycling uh, car parts, or like, I think I've seen numbers, 60 or 90% of this is from, from recycled plastic, uh, what Hi-Fi says, car parts made in the U.S. and Japan. But they take the plastic, they blend it with mica, and that creates the material that's kind of the majority of the ear cups and stuff in these, uh, these new XM5s. I'm curious to touch it, feel yeah. the mica. And hopefully um, it's just as durable as the previous design or something even, you know, not quite as recycled, so to speak. <laughs> well, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's not the first time I've heard of mica or stone or other, you know, substances that came out of the ground and can be stacked to create buildings and or art. Marble is another one I've seen used in the plastic enclosures for speakers. Um, I want to say, I think Goldnear does that, but, uh, um, curious to hear it. And, uh, those are going to be shipping on the 20th, $400. The, uh, XM4 is now $350. And obviously those are cheaper <laughs> than Apple's, uh, AirPods Max, which are, uh, still $500 and still have the silliest case I've ever seen in a headphone. And if you like that case, feel free to tell me why. Email ask at avxl.com or tweet at Patrick Norton. Uh, this came, I saw the announcement for this, and it was under NDA, so I had to wait. But we you've heard us talk about Kef's LS50, Kef's LS50 Meta, uh, the LS50 Wireless 2, which is essentially the Kef LS50 Meta, the wireless version. And so Kef's just announced the LS60 Wireless they're 43 inches tall. They come in the sort of color schemes that are available with the LS50 Meta. Uh, you know, so they're, you know, 43 inches tall, five inches wide, about a foot deep. They're hefty, uh, in part because they have a lot of amps stuffed inside of them, 70 pounds per speaker, something like 1,400 watts of amplification in each speaker. And uh, nice. <laughs> there's a very large white paper or sort of, you know, detailed uh, paper on this. That's a pretty sweet document. Yes. They're pretty heavy in no small part because they're packing a ton of amplification in each speaker. A uh, 500 watt amp for the low frequency drivers, a 100 watt amp for the medium frequency driver, uh, and another 100 watts for the tweeter for the high frequency driver, a mixture of class D and, uh, you know, basically the bigger, the bigger amps are class D, the smaller tweeter amp is class AB. Um, they're claiming the max SPL at a 111 decibels measured at one meter, which means these can get loud enough to flatten your eardrums in the center of your skull which also means they should be able to do a fantastic job filling a large room. And, uh, you know, I think you mentioned this. Hey, shout out to Kef. This is a fantastic document. <laughs> this has all of the information I wanted, including some fairly detailed graphs of how the uh, standard base, extra base, and less base extension modes impact the low end below 50 hertz, which I really appreciate. This is an R&D document, uh, a very yeah. detailed one that, pretty much will tell you anything and everything you want to know about how they came up with this design and mm -hmm. the components that go into it and the relative performance they were looking for and how they went about achieving it. Yeah. It is a girthy, a lengthy document, <laughs> so to speak. <laughs> Actually, it's about 17 pages and it's just jam-packed. It's with a all dense 17 pages. And yeah. cool pictures and diagrams and everything that goes into it. 
and I love the way they look. I will say yeah. that. And I cannot wait to actually get some ears on these. So there's a lot going on in these speakers, right? So, you know, a classic UniQ or unique four-inch driver. That's essentially the mid and the tweeter. The tweeter's concentric on the mid. This has any of a number of advantages in terms of high-end performance. The low end has always been very, very solid on the LS50s, down to about 50 hertz, which covers the vast majority of music. These are plus or minus 3 dB from 31 hertz to 24 kilohertz, according to KEF, and then plus or minus 6 dB from 26 hertz all the way up to 36,000 hertz, which is well beyond anybody's hearing. And that all depends on the bass setting. So, you know, extra bass looks like it's flat to 40 hertz, and then it's down maybe 5 dB at 20 hertz. Um, the Very standard nice. bass setting. Yeah, and, and the, the frequency response is extremely flat. Yeah. And this is a good thing. Um, it's not perfectly flat, but it's pretty good. Uh, this, again, has the metamaterial absorption technology, uh, or MAT, which is, we done, we discussed that in length on the introduction of the LS50 meta. Um, essentially, behind that tangerine waveguide speaker mid-tweeter combination, there is a block of material that has a bunch of sort of tunnels or, or grooves carved into it, like a little maze, like the little ball bearing maze, and that attenuates frequencies radiating back, and that helps clean up the signal because it doesn't have additional audio bouncing around the back of the case. And There's actually a picture of that device in yeah. particular in that PDF document from the... Yeah. Uh, from Kef themselves. And I'll, yeah. I'll be sure to link that PDF and I'll mark it clearly as a PDF so you're not suddenly surprised <laughs> when you click the link and kaboom, <laughs> the document make appears. Sure there's a, make sure, that, yeah, this is linked off of, of Kef. I'll make sure we're out, we're allowed to, to link that. Um, so well, a big part of the, the it's design It's in a public folder. <laughs> just, just don't give me, don't, don't be, don't give me PNG'd. No. Um, so there's a pair of uh, Unicore uh, low frequency drivers in this in the LS60 wireless. They're pretty cool to look at. These are like the KC62 subwoofers where there are two drivers that share a motor unit and they you know they're concentric they face out from each other which means they're going to cancel any sort of you know ah. any low end that might bounce the speaker around from the low frequency drivers is going to be canceled out because they are concentric and opposed to each other so there's there's uh, essentially two of these four of these speakers which are built into two of these drivers each of these drivers the two speakers share a motor and those are above and below uh, they radiate perpendicular uh, or if you prefer to the left and right of the mid-tweeter, the UniQ driver, as it's facing you. And these are big, healthy, overbuilt, uh, <laughs> low-frequency drivers. There's a lot of engineering going into these. If the LS50 just isn't big enough. <laughs> yeah. Well, <laughs> You now have the a thing, floor right? stander option, so to speak. Yeah. And the LS, look, the LS50s are, are, are quite pleasing without a subwoofer. If you want solid bass down to 20 hertz, you're going to need a subwoofer. Um, these are doing pretty solid bass down to 25 or 30 hertz. And I would honestly say, unless you want to recreate the sitting in the front door, getting front door, sitting in the front row of a Rage Against the Machine concert, or you spend a lot of time at live orchestral performances where you're used to having 60 instruments blasting into your face, there's going to be more than enough bass for most people here. The wireless panel has built-in subwoofer output, so if you want to, you know, bring a little more into the low end, you can do that with external subwoofers on that. Wi-Fi, Bluetooth, HDMI, eARC, optical coaxial, and RCA connections. Uh, so you can pretty much plug anything you need into it. 
You can stream to it. It's uh, nice. Airplay 2. Pre-orders open this week. They're going to be shipping at the end of May. $7,000 for the pair. The LS50 Wireless 2 is $2,700, and with subs, they're very, very good. A bit, you know, Depending on the subs, it's probably a lot less than $7,000, but uh, these are sophisticated floor standards with a whole lot of low-end built into them. So I'm, uh, again, Rob said it before, we're excited to hear them. Heck yeah. Yeah. It's just a, for an all-in-one speaker that's self-powered, it's a premium option. At a mm-hmm. relatively decent price compared to some other things out there that, you know, you can spend all you want on loudspeakers. And these are just <laughs> delivering that that pretty impressive flat performance all the way down to 30 hertz. And even below yeah. that a little bit with some drop off. It gives you options, I feel, that in terms of if you want to add a subwoofer or not. Mm-hmm. Uh, these, at least right out of the gate, are capable of delivering some pretty impressive boom, which is going to yeah. be great for hey, music, home theater what have you. It's just a, if somebody wants to kind of build their own system and kind of ignore, say, an AVR, this has just about everything you need built right in, in terms of getting it connected to either your analog or digital sources Mm -hmm. and going from there in a terrific looking design. Granted, it's a premium price tag per pair, but that's just a high end price tag. We'll get exactly, (laughs) exactly. I don't think so. I think it's it's perfectly priced. <laughs> oh my goodness! Um, pre-orders are up this week, also for Sonos's new Ray. That's her smallest, least expensive soundbar, and uh, two tweeters, two ported midwoofers in this. I was it was in. I guess it's about two two feet wide, two and a half feet wide, Robert. Yeah, it would fit perfectly, say, under a twenty-seven inch monitor sitting on your desk. Oh wow! It is about that wide. So uh, it can be paired with rear satellites like all the rest of uh, Sonos's soundbar lineup. And don't forget, there are some fantastic options for that that will blend into the decor in most any room at your local IKEA. Um, <laughs> I like the IKEA Sonos products. True Play tuning, uh, there's also adjustable EQ in the Sonos app if you want to customize it to your ear instead of to their microphone system. There's a night sound option, i.e. the dynamic compression so that the explosions don't wake the entire house up because you had the volume up high enough to hear the whispering before the explosions, uh, optical touch controls, uh, TV remote sync, Wi-Fi, Apple AirPlay are all supported, and you can pre-order that now for delivery on June 7th. Very cool. I'm appreciative yeah. of the fact that Sonos is bundling TruePlay technology into this speaker at this price point, whereas it's something you don't see from other manufacturers, in particular like Bose. For Bose's least expensive offerings, they typically yeah. skip that feature, and it's only available on their more premium products. And Sonos, at least as far as their sound bars go, incorporates that that room correction tuning feature built right into, so far, all of their home theater sound bar style products. <laughs> I'm double checking to make sure airplay is actually listed in the ls60 wireless listing i'll stop and do that later uh other thing that sonos announced this week is uh their roam is now available in three exclusive hues one of which looks red one of which looks green and one of which looks blue um <laughs> yay <laughs> which there's just more colors out there it also happens to be the only sonos product with actual bluetooth input <laughs> As a portable speaker. Anyway, that's a minor complaint I have. 
Kef LS50, excuse me, LS60 wireless supports AirPlay 2, Google Chromecast, uh, it's UPnP compatible, Bluetooth 4.2, and there's Rune Ready with a star. Uh, so the Rune Ready aspect of the LS60 will not be until fall of 2022. Uh, Monolith drops more amps by ATI. The M8125 8x100 watts per channel, that's uh, Class D using Hypex NC252MP modules, which basically means badass performance and effectively silence. Um, it, it's it's a wire with gain and a lot of gain 175 watts in the four ohm that's two thousand dollars the m8250 that's an eight by 200 watt per channel this time using hypex mc502 modules that's three thousand dollars and those will drive a hefty 400 watts into four ohms basically all the inputs on these two amps are xlr inputs and they come with monoliths or monoprices monolith five-year warranty which is a plus as far as I'm concerned. These are built for, for Monolith, for Monoprice's Monolith line by ATI. ATI, I own two ATI amplifiers. They are, you know, <laughs> they're beasts. And I mean that in the best and most positive way. If you have a whole lot of channels to drive, whether it's a whole house audio system or, you know, you're doing five or 7.1 plus multiple Atmos channels, these are a nice way to do it. Indeed. And that five-year warranty is really nice, too. Um, did you get any excited about anything at uh, Google I.O. 2022 this week? Just the early preview of the new Pixel 7 phone, the Pixel 7 Pro in particular. They provided very little information about the, the main features of the phone itself, but they gave a look at the exterior, including mm -hmm. some details about what the camera setup is likely to be. And it'll be their second-generation in-house processor. I am predicting that will be the phone I will buy next uh, as I am sitting on a rather old Pixel device right now that I'm dying to upgrade, but I didn't want to go with the <laughs> 6. The 6 just didn't do it for me, but for whatever reason, I think this second iteration of that new style of phone from mm -hmm. Google is the one that I am most interested in. In addition, they showed off a bit of their Pixel Buds Pro I believe they're called, their earbuds. Mm -hmm. And that was another thing I'm just curious to know. The price seems right. And if the sound quality is there, the other features yeah. look solid in terms of having uh, automatic noise cancellation and decent battery life and Google's in-house well, developed algorithms for making the sound sound even better, hopefully. But until I see some reviews, I'm not jumping on anything, so... I'm really curious to hear those, right? So they are adding active noise cancellation for the first time. Quote, custom six-core audio chip that runs Google-developed algorithms, all tuned by our in-house audio engineering team and custom speakers. Well, custom, you know, drivers are, are essentially, for the most part, you know, made for individual manufacturers. Super curious to hear this. Uh, 11 hours battery life for ANC, seven hours with ANC on. By the way, those Sony WH-1000XM5s, apparently you get like another 10 hours of battery life out of those if you turn uh, active noise cancellation off. I don't know where I read that. But seven hours with active noise cancellation on for the, the Google Pixel Buds Pro. They have something they're calling Silent Seal. If you can't get a good seal on your ear, uh, similar to something the Airbuds Pro does, it's supposed to, you know, maximize the amount of noise that's canceled despite uh, maybe your seal not being so good. And, quote, built-in sensors will measure the pressure in your ear canal to make sure that you're comfortable even during long listening sessions. Say goodbye to that annoyed plugged ear feeling, end quote. So, oh, very good. Uh, 
Yeah, they're doing a lot of stuff. Uh, uh, they're doing a lot of stuff. I'm curious to hear with their psychoacoustics, for example. They're going to tweak the tuning uh, as you adjust the volume up and down. Um, quote, so that highs, mids, and lows consistently sound balanced. Uh, somebody that likes to listen to music down softly, it's nice when you can still hear the bass, despite the fact that the volume is down. Spatial sounds coming uh, later this year. I have not found anything that has really drawn me deeply into spatial sound, except for maybe a couple of really interesting uh, Atmos tracks. For some artists that were creating the tracks specifically for Atmos, right? I find the generic we dropped, you know, spatial sound onto this classic album that everybody's been buying over and over again for forty years not super impressive. Um, if you're out there listening and you have some spatial audio or some Datmos audio or some 360 surround audio or whatever particular flavor you're listening to that you particularly like, do me a favor, tell me about it, uh, askatabxl.com. Very, very curious to hear if anybody out there is listening to that kind of stuff and what you are finding impressive. So I wait with bated breath. <laughs> July 21, wait. by the way. Google also did announce that Pixel 6a, which is going to be their new value version of a phone being released in the coming weeks. And that price point at, I believe, $450, that sounds pretty good for what you get, especially if you're going to go with something like Google Fi, their phone Mm -hmm. service as well. That can provide a very compelling experience that's relatively affordable. However, I am often tempted by the Motorola phones that Google offers for sale with their service at prices that can be like a couple hundred dollars for a brand new unlocked phone granted it's not going to be the latest and greatest of all technologies but just that price point for a phone that you can own outright is something i'm always appreciative of especially if you're on a budget and you need something to replace a perhaps broken phone or a missing phone uh quickly and conveniently (laughs) it's good to have options it is good to have options. By the way, uh, Pixbud Pro, $200. Pre-orders start on July 21st. Um, the other thing that was funny uh, is that the Pixel 6a does not have a headphone jack, so Google can no longer run <laughs> commercials mocking Apple's lack of headphone jacks. <laughs> How quickly things change. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> Shifting gears a little bit, Rob, you have been pretty patiently, I think, walking everybody through some of the basic terms. Uh, This week, projector types. Yeah. We often talk about laser projectors as if it's actual laser beams shooting out the front and creating the image directly. No. When we talk about laser projectors or any projectors, you have a light source. And in the case of laser projectors, that is the light source. We also have lamps we're all familiar with. They can either be high pressure style lamps or even Xeon lamps, which are mostly used in commercial or very high end projectors. Sure. Uh, we were talking about the costs of those particular lamp modules. In addition to having companies like AMC transitioning their current projectors from a lamp style projector into laser projectors, which should hopefully lower their cost over the long term. Let me shout out about lamp costs. As, as somebody who's owned you know, projectors, Gosh, it's been, it's probably been more than a decade at this point, right? My first projector was an Optoma projector, an Optoma 1080p projector. I bought off of a Woot Off or a Woot Closeout sale as a refurbished projector. It cost me $600. Now, to put that into context, at the time, a mediocre to modest 55-inch television would have cost me somewhere in the neighborhood of $1,500 to $1,800. So I then had a 90-inch screen with my 1080p projector for $600. 
The first lamp I put in there was $295. The first lamp I put into my previous Epson projector was also in the neighborhood of $300. So when we talk about lamps being inexpensive or get excited about laser projectors having a 20,000 hour life it's because typically five that you know a projector bulb might get you 5,000 hours and then cost you $300 to replace consumables uh, they might be yeah they, and these these consumables are, are not inexpensive and like we talked about in the case of AMC or commercial projectors in general those can be thousands yeah. of dollars per lamp module and they're being used every stinking day probably multiple times a day anyway when we talk about actual projector types and what actually makes the pixel you see on the screen, it's typically one of three technologies. We have DLP, LCD, and then LCOS, or liquid crystalline silicon, or somebody's variety, uh, variation of that particular type. It, it is not referring to the lamp per se. Now, almost all of the commercial cinema projectors we look at today are DLP based, mm -hmm. and many of them are three chip designs especially in your premium theaters like Dolby Cinema in particular. A DLP being Texas Instruments Digital Light Processing Technology. Regardless of whether it's DLP, LCD, or LCOS, you have a light source then that interacts with that particular technology to modulate the pixels and create the picture we see. However, when it gets into producing color, that's where you have some challenges. Uh, for lamp-based systems, they typically will use something like a color wheel where you start off with a whitish light and then you shine that through colored segments on a wheel that rotates to produce the red, blue, green you need for actually producing full color imagery. In the case of lasers, ideally it would be RGB lasers all being driven through their individual paths in a three chip system to keep your red, blue, and green separate and processed individually until it hits the screen. And in the case of more affordable laser projectors, where they're only using a single color, typically blue, they will combine that with phosphor materials in order to generate a greenish or a yellowish light that then is split into the red and the green that we need for creating that full color imagery, so to speak. But uh, as far as I know, there are no actual laser projectors, just uh, simple laser emitters pointing at a wall and being able to create a full color image that way. <laughs> I have seen some quote unquote laser projectors that are more for like very artistic or effects generation things that are not really there to make imagery, so to speak. I should say, keep it separate in terms of what is the actual light source and then what is the chip or technology that is individually crafting those individual pixels we see on the screen. And that's a good reminder, I think, for today. <laughs> Copy that. Yeah. What about micro lens? Now, we were also talking about OLED efficiency and how to improve that for display systems. And we mentioned last week micro lensing. What is cool about that? Well, I should say, first of all, I was confusingly mixing up brightness with efficiency in a couple of the statements I made. Uh, right now, with the way they are able to modify the stack of the OLED materials using things like micro lensing technology, in addition to what's even more important are these refraction grids that they are able to layer directly onto the OLED materials themselves that effectively redirect trapped photons that were, when they were generated within the material, were shooting off to the sides at too shallow of an angle to escape either the material or to get into the next layer up, into the glass layer, then escape into our eyes. 
Ideally, with any kind of light source, you want it coming perpendicular right out of the screen for maximum efficiency. And it's the use of this grid technology at the closest possible layer next to the OLED materials that gives it its initial boost. It's doing the heavy lifting in terms of getting those stray photons at least shooting more perpendicular to the screen. And then you have the micro lens layer on top of that. That will take those, maybe they're not 100% perpendicular, but it will then redirect them even more so. And that's where they are currently at about 50% efficiency in terms of getting those photons out. And they seem very confident that this could easily be pushed up into 80% efficiency. The bottom line is, I would say within a year or so, you will see OLED panels, uh, large format OLED panels suddenly with another 20% bump in brightness uh, to our eyes just from this way of redirecting these stray photons. Not any other change like we mentioned last week in terms of the, say the chemical composition of the OLED materials or any other part of the panel really other than just getting these devices you could think of them as, be it a refraction grid or a micro lens layer that are just steering those wayward photons uh, as perpendicular as possible out of the display and into our eyes. Hmm. And then I also promised last week a quick update on the current state of ATSC 3.0, aka Next Gen TV. And I have to give a quick shout out to a YouTube channel called Antenna Man. And he alerted me to the addition of DRM recently into the ATSC 3.0 standard. And this update is apparently rolling out this summer. Now, we are still very, very, very early in this transition process to this next generation broadcast standard. But take a look at Antenna Man's channel over on YouTube. He provides a great update right now as to why certain channels will be encrypted. He also mentioned that many of the main manufacturers out there for TVs that are incorporating these ATSC 3.0 tuners already, including Samsung, Sony, LG, Hisense, and others, will be providing software updates that will ensure compatibility with these broadcasts if you are an early adopter and actually using one of these. Uh, and Man also made a good point. He said the primary channel in the current broadcast system, your dot one channel in, say, a mm -hmm. broadcast, that will always remain free and unencrypted. That is a rule that the FCC has laid out. However, this update and allowing encryption effectively will allow DRM in effect for broadcasters to take advantage of to provide premium or paid content via an over-the-air broadcast. It could very well enable something like, say, ESPN over the air, and you could subscribe to it without needing, say, a, a cable or satellite or streaming subscription. It could be done right over the air with an appropriate receiver that can process that and link it to you in a payment way. Anyway, I don't see the addition of encryption or DRM within this standard really making that big of a difference. And it provides honestly <laughs> more options for more content uh, in, in a way that some people can take advantage of at very low cost or without having to break down and get a cable or satellite subscription, so to speak. I was going to say, if you're, if you're in one of those areas where you have decent broadcast, but you know, you don't have cable or maybe your internet is squiffy, um, to use a highly technical phrase, that might be an option there. I'd be, I'll be really curious to see, because I, I agree, it's going to take forever for this to roll out, but I'm kind of curious to see what they do roll out uh, when it finally starts hitting, uh, you know, broadcast towers in volume. I feel like ATSC 3.0, is it, does it feel like it's taking longer than it was supposed to, or is that just me 
feeling that that it's kind of behind the curve. I totally agree with that statement. I think it's more of the fact that there is no there's no mandate to make this happen. So it can happen mm. at the pace of, you know, the broadcaster's willingness to go forward. <laughs> and apparently they're not entirely jumping on board, uh, at least as far as, you know, being forced to in any way. And got it. We'll see. For me, I just want 4K broadcasts. Really, that's all I want. I want to be able to see something that was actually shot in 4K, delivered over the air in 4K, in a way that's right. relatively affordable. Especially when people are buying, quote-unquote, 4K TVs and beyond in greater numbers. Hopefully we'll have some real 4K content uh, available to more people. That would be nice. Quick follow-up on... Uh, so I talked uh, last week about a, a vinyl survey that they talked about in CE Pro Magazine that was a 27% bump in 2021 over 2020 in terms of uh, vinyl sales. And I asked Russ Music Watch, you know, is that a bounce back from COVID? Did COVID crush sales in 2020? Was that 27% bump uh, due to sales being down? He tweeted back to me, great question. Vinyl sales were actually up in 2020 as well, defying COVID. This was an acceleration of the trend of more fans buying vinyl. So vinyl keeps getting stronger. Um, Vinyl sales keep growing. So. I'll simply add to my aversion to vinyl is mostly related to my inability to keep an album scratch free. It, it really just comes down to that. I, every album I've ever owned, as much as I may have loved it at some point, becomes damaged a little bit. And that's more on me than anything. So well, there's my reason yeah, for you... my love of digital. <laughs> A little digital, just a little I, easier to back up. Although you you showed us, or at least described to us, how to take your vinyl and get it digitized, if <laughs> if need be. Oh my, yeah, and yeah, I mean, I talked about this last week. The primary reason I own a turntable is to digitize albums that I'll never be able to find in totally. in digital format. Right? You know, obscure ska albums, small punk albums. Um, you know, there were thousands of labels that released. Uh, you know, 45s back in the 50s. And, you know, there's just a lot of stuff out there that, that, you know, the master tapes are gone. The ownership is unknown. If you can get a copy of the disc, you can, you can digitize it. Yeah. I'm with Rob. I was, I was, I started collecting vinyl when I was probably 12 or 13 years old. It was incredibly difficult to keep uh, unscratched in part because if I was dancing, uh, you know, I lived in a 250 year old house. If I was dancing, the floor was bouncing the needle off the, yes. <laughs> off the record, which is problematic. And, uh, you know, tapes were a thing and CDs were miraculous because they didn't skip and you could just jump to any track you wanted. And the sound quality was really amazing. Uh, and then digital took that to the next level. Um, you know, I, I, I get the attraction of setting a needle on an actual disc and sitting down and enjoying that and then coming back and turning the album over. It's just... Um, oh, in many ways, I find it very compelling. Uh, that Especially if it's going to be like a background music listening experience where you just want to put something on. That sound of the needle hitting the, the album is... Uh, and that, that little bit of crackling you get with the intro and, <laughs> and any kind of quiet part. There's something very appealing to me about that kind of a sound. It, it isn't so much that. It's just the day in and day out use and my inability to <laughs> keep an album scratch free. Oh, I just <sighs> refuse to touch them anymore. It's like, no, 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 no. I, I, I will look, but I will not touch. <laughs> I, I, I will, will say listen. there's a lot of vinyl 
out there these days. Yeah. Um, also, especially, you know, if, if you're traveling, if you're a vinyl person and you're traveling through St. Louis, kick me an email. There's three or four major vinyl outlets and there's a ton of antique stores that have racks of vinyl that people are picking up at uh, garage sales and estate sales. Also, speaking of the, the, the needle on the record sound, that was one of the things that really uh, caught your attention in Matthew Sweet's uh, 2000 album, Girlfriend. Um, speaking of going back a long time, uh, some of our patrons, patreon.com slash AVXL, thank you for being our patron. I've been around for a long time. So let's give a shout out to Tom Kane, Robert Bowles. I'm going for it. And if I've made a mistake by announcing your name, um, email me, ask at avxl.com. Andrew Bradley, Dan Dennedy, Todd Wilkinson, and Adam Hoskins have all been patrons since early 2016. And we want to thank you for being our patrons at patreon.com slash avxl. You make this show possible, and we appreciate it. And keep an eye on your email or at patreon.com slash avxl for the time of our next hangout this month. Tom Prosma tweeted out, the audio on today's IndyCar practice at Indianapolis on Peacock is pretty good. They put the track announcer and ambient track sounds on the Atmos and surround speakers. It sounds like you're at the track. I will suggest it sounds like you're at the track with one important fix. It's not so loud. It's physically painful <laughs> as the cars Indeed. go by. That's pretty cool, though. Um, I like the fact yeah. that they're for a live event, they're doing a good sound mix. And taking advantage Hearing, of, you know, something a lot of people have in their homes and it, it, at least as far as, say, a surround sound setup right. would go. And taking better advantage of that for things like sporting events or live events to not only make it sound better, but give you that immersion. That so extra bit. Yeah. Of, yeah. No, I, I, and if you've ever if you've ever been trackside when when indie cars are going by, boy, is it a distinctive experience. I pair it's, this with uh, uh, Something like NASCAR does on every event sure. is the turn it up sequence where they kind of just go quiet and stop announcing for a while and just do track sound. This is like the next step of that, being able to actually mix it to do a solid 5-1 mix. Since you're broadcasting it in Dolby Digital anyway at 5-1, <laughs> take advantage of that and just don't make it a standard, you know, stereo enhanced, so to speak, uh, experience. Either way. It's nice it's nice when they when when they make the effort. Yeah, we appreciate it. We got a great tweet from Jeffrey Stoll. He says, "I enjoy the AVXL podcast. I was surprised to see no coverage on Axpona. Also, nothing on the news of Andrew Jones joining MoFi. Would love to see high end audio. You say no matter what the price, but no high end and a big what I think is a shrug or a what's the matter you kind of emoji <laughs> thing going on there. What's up? <laughs> oh my goodness. Um, first of all, Jeffrey, Jeff, Jeffrey, Jeffrey. I'll call you Jeffrey." Mr. Stoll, um, thanks for the kind words and uh, reaching out on this. And we're really glad you enjoy the podcast. I actually really mean that. Yeah. Um, and Mia culpa, I totally missed that Andrew Jones is joining MoFi, MoFi Sound Lab. I was say MoFi.com is a website. I had no idea MoFi existed, which I'm sure I've seen the name somewhere. Uh, and I'll try to get on their radar to, 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 to as soon as they start talking more about the speakers that Andrew Jones is designing. Um, I really wish they'd announce some actual deets on what uh, Mr. Jones is going to be working on there because I'm a fan of the man's work. And uh, it's interesting, right? Because MoFi Sound Lab, uh, they're primarily known for vinyl and uh, SACDs. I had no idea anybody was still making SACDs. And they've got some interesting sort of engineering technology going on there and uh, in their efforts to maximize 
fidelity for SACDs in vinyl. But uh, MoFi.com, let me double check that a fourth time. MoFi.com, yes. The undisputed leader in audiophile recording since 1977. And uh, so if you've never heard of it, check out the website. They also do uh, some electronics, a couple of turntables, a bunch of cartridges, a headphone amplifier. And my understanding, based on what I was able to kind of root out, is that MoFi wants to be able to create a system that takes everything from their software, i.e. their, you know, vinyl records, um, and through the cartridge, the turntable, you know, the amplifier and the speakers, and to have all of that be under MoFi's house, as it were, or be under MoFi's branding. So curious, curious, curious to see that. Very, very curious also to see what the pricing is going to be like on the speakers he does for those. Because Andrew Jones has done everything from like $50,000 bookshelf speakers for Tad, uh, all the way down to the extraordinary speakers he made for Pioneer that were incredibly right. affordable and delivered really, really good sound. And there's also something, it's funny, uh, I don't, have I talked about Philharmonic Audio on here? I think so. Yeah, they do the, the, the BMR towers and the BMR monitors and, and uh, the principal behind Philharmonic Audio, he at one point was doing uh, upgrade kits where you could kind of change the tweeter and he had a uh, crossover design that really flattened out. He basically allowed you to put more money into the those Pioneer, Andrew Jones Pioneer design speakers and take them from a very, very good speaker to an extraordinary speaker for not a whole lot of money. Andrew Jones is, I, I think the quote from him is, well, most places spend like 10 cents on drivers and put them in a speaker. And I spend like a dollar and boy, that's a big difference. Right. <laughs> Um, he also does some pretty phenomenal uh, woofer and mid-range designs. In any case, uh, shifting gears to kind of the second part of your question, uh, Jeffrey. Um, yeah, you're right. We don't cover high-end audio as intently, and it has been very, very hard for us to cover it at all uh, during COVID because so many shows have been canceled. And Axpona was tough. I was supposed to drive up to Axpona for a day to go listen to a bunch of stuff. And when we get to go to a trade show, um, whether it's CES or Axpona or, or the recently deceased Rocky Mountain Audio Fest or the not deceased and looking forward to it this summer uh, Can Jam, it gives us a chance to get eyeballs on or ears on a whole bunch of products and that we might other uh, that we would not otherwise have access to. Exactly. And especially with high-end audio, um, most high-end audio shops or designers or, or manufacturers, they tend to, you know, design something and not change it a lot. Their products tend to come out for, for years and, or, 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 or they, they tend to ship for several years at a stretch. And I mention that because when we don't get to go to a trade show, we usually just look at the new product announcements. And a lot of the quote, new products, unquote, at Expona were actually from previous years, mostly 2020, 2021. Of course, nobody's had a chance to see them or listen to them. And finally, since there was actually a freaking audio trade show that people could go to, they finally got to hear this stuff. Um, but, you know, we've also covered some fairly high-end gear, primarily speakers, um, speakers that cost more than my truck, uh, from Magico, Ravel, Perlison, Vandersteen, and others, um, you know, and you know, it's tough, right? Because one of the things that happens when you start getting into the high end is a lot of these vendors don't have a lot of dealers in the United States. And, you know, it's true. Hard. It is. It isn't like we have something like this. Yeah. A Magnolia Hi-Fi, which carries, you know, uh, speakers up to the heavy five digits 
or or greater. <laughs> yeah. And because More we like don't have a lot of four digit speakers. <laughs> totally. And then the fact that because of just restrictions and everything, being able to go to a high end audio show has not been as easy as it has been in past years. No. And that's the primary place where you or I would actually it's convenient. The manufacturers are there with their products and their own custom suites to listen to and to at least get a little hands-on time and a little ear-on time. Yeah. And that's the challenge of it compared to something that's a little more mass-produced or a little easier to ship or something we could actually get in-house or in-home right. for a preview. If it's a $40,000 pair of speakers, there's two or three places they care about. Stereophile, the absolute sound. There's a couple others out there. And, you know, in many cases, they may not actually want a lot of people to hear these speakers um, because that kind of enhances the mystique and it all becomes about what people talk about on forums or, or you know, there's a there's some very interesting experiences at high-end audio dealers. And I will be honest with you, my experiences have pretty much either been fantastic or awful. And... <laughs> It you know. covers the board without a doubt. It's, you know, yeah. there are some amazing high-end speakers out there. Mm-hmm. I mean, physically just impressive to look at, uh, yeah. beautiful sounding, but it's just not as easy to acquire and review as it would be with yeah. other product types. That's one where you really do need the show. Or if there was perchance, you know, a high-end speaker chain somewhere uh, with, with a variety of places we could go visit across the United States right. or around the world even. That would make things easier, <laughs> yeah, or a decent trade but, show, but still, yeah. I mean, it's it. There's there's kind of one high end audio dealer here in St. Louis. Uh, two, if you count uh, an audio dealer that's more of a, a home automation installer uh, out in the county. The next nearest one is Columbia, and there's one in Kansas City, and that looks you know there's a lot of that. That's pretty good actually compared to a lot of other parts of the country. Um, it's frustrating, right? Because when I was, you know, uh, in my late teens, early twenties, there was a place in lower Manhattan called the stereo exchange and the stereo exchange was very, very close to NYU. And they realized that it was okay to sell inexpensive or used gear to college students because they couldn't afford anything else for the most part. And that if you help them develop an ear for good sound, then they might come around and spend the more expensive stuff. You know, they, they had racks of, of used, uh, you know, amplifiers, receivers, speakers. And then, of course, they had some incredibly spendy, um, you know, six-foot-tall speakers attached to racks. I mean, I remember seeing racks. It's where my love of <laughs> the meters on McIntosh amplifiers came from, was the, the one of the front main rooms of the stereo exchange. And, you know, I'll be honest, I've discovered that, you know, and, and in part because there's not a lot of money going into the high end, and they need to kind of maximize, you know, their time in the retail shop. It can be, if you're not, you know, a serious shopper that is scheduled an appointment, uh, I've, I don't know, I have a funny feeling if I walked in wearing a blazer, if I borrowed my friend's Tesla rolled up out front and was wearing a blazer and a decent pair of loafers, I would probably get a much better reception than I have at the last couple of high-end audio dealers I went to. Um you know, it's surprising it's, it's, how many retailers yeah. actually judge you upon your appearance. 
<laughs> and which is not unreasonable. I don't know. Um, I don't know. I mean, I've also <laughs> I have also asked to hear certain things and been steered towards things that I know have a higher profit margin. So I I may also just be kind of frustrated with that. It's also you know uh, there's also a lot of stuff. Things get complicated in high end audio, and uh, because the there's just a lot of people deeply invested in how much they spent on cables or peculiar little devices uh or staggeringly expensive gear and it it can be frustrating because at some point these become and i don't mean this in a bad way but they are heirloom objects they are fetish items they are examples of your exquisite taste you know in furnishings and style as much or vastly in some cases more so than they are, you know, reasonably priced or quality priced devices for musical reproduction. Right. I'm getting a little existential and, and sophomore, you know, philosophy class. But here, I think but... that sums it up really well. I mean, that's that's what it really does come <laughs> down to, though. Yeah. You can pay all you want for audio equipment. But yeah, as you've mentioned, it is that diminishing return, generally speaking. And unless you're looking for a specific look, or how it's going to envelop the room, so to speak. It, just from its yeah. physical appearance and its size or shape, something that grabs you that way. You know, that's different from maybe having the best audio experience. There's some thirty, forty, fifty, $80,000 speakers I would cheerfully own. Uh, I, you know, I'd have to sell my house to buy them and I'd be divorced by the time they arrived. But Understood. <laughs> so I'd have, you know, but, uh, you know, there's, there's some extraordinary speakers out there. In any case, uh, you know, I feel like there can be some extraordinary high-end values in speakers. I, it gets harder in some of the other areas, but uh, we'll do our best. And, and like Rob said before, you know, now that the shows are, are not collapsing before they can even start, right. we'll have a chance to hear some of the high-end stuff again. That also applies for projectors and screens, too. Um, you know, somebody like uh, digital projector, you know, they're selling hundred thousand dollar, $400,000 projectors. Uh, and the, I, I don't think there is anywhere to see those outside of their factory, uh, or Cedia. Um, so we look forward to getting out there and getting our eyeballs on things and our earballs. stare at our specs. They're well, awesome. I never say earballs again. <laughs> All right. Oh my goodness. You, you got to look at another one of LG's uh, OLED Pro monitors. How'd that go? Yeah, I did. I showed up at a client's office, and it was with the express intention of calibrating this thing for SDR work. Uh, BT709 color, this is what they were working on, and they just wanted to make sure that thing was dialed right in. And my calibration software was recently updated to provide direct support for this monitor where I could do lookup table programming, and I was excited to actually try that out. However... Upon measuring the quote-unquote out-of-the-box characteristics of this monitor using the basic presets built into it, I found that it was near perfect right from the factory uh, to a point where I was not willing to chase my tail trying to make that graph look arguably the same or it was effectively perfect. So I just said, you know what? This thing is dialed in as long as you select the, say, BT709 picture preset leave the white balance at default, this thing was just dialed in. And for anyone doing that kind of work, be it a colorist or what have you, this was one of the most accurate, uh, and by being an OLED monitor, 
uniform displays I'd seen at this price point. Granted, that's a 4,000, or I think it's about $3,600, $3,700 right now for that particular display. And it does come with, I believe, a calibration puck with built-in software in the display itself. Either way, that thing was one of the finest out-of-the-box experiences I've ever seen in terms of just uh, what it means to have a factory calibration that is worth its worth its salt or worth its <laughs> period <laughs> worth it period it was just very nice to see and even though i didn't have to do a lot of work on it i would say i have looked at pro monitors that are four or five times the price of that lg oled and they all required some adjustment this one literally i was just looking at the results going this is I am tempted not to touch anything at all because it looked so good just the way it was in terms of grayscale tracking to actual color measurements in terms of their accuracy and across the board. And it's an OLED monitor as well, so you get the perfect black. And it just effectively was terrific. I also tested it at a couple of different gamma settings just to make sure there was no oddities there if you switch between, say, 2.2 versus 2.4, depending on your work environment. Either way, that, that is a pro monitor, and I would gladly put it right up there with anyone looking at something far more expensive, especially for SDR work. I know that uh, EP950 from LG is also HDR compatible and capable. Uh, I believe it does practically 100% DCI color, so it would be good for editing content like that. But I was looking at it specifically as an SDR monitor, and it is fantastic. And uh, earlier this week, we had Display Week, the Society for Information Displays, showing off their latest and greatest here in California. And apparently LG was going to show up with the 97-inch OLED, just to unveil that here in North America, so to speak. And I have not seen an actual picture of that display at the show. I simply want to know if it actually made it to the, to the show itself, but... <laughs> we'll dig into that probably next week. I'll uh, pull a few stories from there to see what is up as far as some of the latest cutting-edge display work out there. Mm. Uh, somewhat less cheerful news. Samsung, uh, uh, looks like Samsung's going to be following TSMC with a 20% hike on chip-making prices. That's, uh, you know, processors, memory, all that kind of stuff. And TSMC also expects to raise things uh, 5 to 9% in 2023. So in terms of the processors that are going into chips or the memories that are required for some devices you use, like streaming boxes and stuff, I don't expect the prices to be going down much soon, I think. Though I will say I'm still delighted that, um, you know, Emotiva, who raised the price of the B1 Plus speakers and then dropped the price... Uh, after raising it so you know I, prices can go down I, I i often find myself shocked and delighted by that i also uh had a chance to uh i was quoted uh for an article uh uh well it's not live yet so i can't talk about no. it but i i i'll just say this when you are buying a television especially if it is a samsung or an lg television Right, they're announced in January. They start shipping sometime between late March and maybe early June, and when they ship, they're at their highest price. I think everybody listening knows that. And then usually the price dips and pops up and dips and pops up and dips and pops up. And then somewhere around September or October, it will pretty much be at its lowest. At the very latest, it'll be at its lowest. You know, right before Black Friday, 
And then, shockingly enough, the prices will go up again the last couple of weeks of shopping before Hanukkah and Christmas and Kwanzaa and everything else. And then they will generally flatline again around CES as the new models are announced, uh, at least until they physically run out of televisions in the channel. These are significant drops. A lot of televisions, uh, you know, less so in, you know, if you're spending $500 for a television, there's not a lot of elasticity in that price. By the time you get to $1,500 or $2,000 for a television, it is not unusual to see them down several hundred dollars, like 25 to 30% drops in price. They'll happen right. at, the, at the low end stuff, or the, I should say the less expensive stuff too, but it is not unusual to see a 25 or 30% drop in price between when it is announced and a few months later in the fall. Um, so if you're buying a television, remember, if you want to save some money, try not to buy it when it first comes out the gate. So <laughs> Totally. And one follow-up to that would also be just the quality of the software built into the display device. You look at something mm. like Samsung's recent launch of that S95B Quantum OLED, and it clearly needs at least one good software update to make it uh, a world-class display. And that is something you will see as time goes by, uh, the better companies will provide these software fixes and updates to make it a more complete product. So if you are buying something right, as soon as it's released, you are putting up with the bugs and the quirks uh, until those things are fixed. And that's one reason to, not only will you save some money by just waiting a little while, but you will also get the later upgrades to the internal software to make it even a more easy to use and efficient and uh, solid product. And speaking of that, my old LG C9 TV has, I thought, had received its last update sometime last year. It has received at least two more updates since then. <laughs> so even these older quote unquote TVs, my, my ancient 2019 model is still receiving software tweaks and fixes even after all this time. And it would be nice to actually have better documentation in terms of exactly what is being changed and altered. But for a lot of these displays, I find it's it's great to be on the bleeding edge, of course. But if you can hold off a few months, you'll get a better price and a more mature product. And that just makes, I think, long-term ownership all the easier on um, the pocketbook and your sanity in terms of just getting it up and running the way you expect it to. There you have it. Oh, and if you haven't seen it, the good folks over at Ratings have posted their review of the S95B, and I I won't spoil anything other than to say that they were quite the impressed overall. It has its quirks, <laughs> like I mentioned. It will be getting some software updates, clearly, but that's a neat product. Very neat. We like neat products. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my goodness. I do. If you've got a question for us, do us a favor, email ask at avxl.com, or you can tweet at Robert Heron, at Patrick Norton, or at avxl. And uh, thanks again to our patrons, patreon.com slash avxl. Keep an eye on uh, your email or at patreon.com slash avxl for our next hangout. And thank you, each and every one of you, for making the show possible. And thank you to each and every one of you listening right now for staying all the way to the end. We appreciate that. And with that, ladies and gentlemen, I'm Patrick Norton. I am Robert Heron. We'll catch you next week on AVXL.